You're now entering Red Zone with Chairman Rick Scott. Paid for by the NRSC, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. NRSC.org. Hi, uh, this is Senator Rick Scott. I'm the chairman of the National Republican Central Committee. And we have a podcast. It's called the NRSC Red Zone. So you're in the NRSC Red Zone. Today, I've got a special guest, a good friend of mine from a beautiful state that everybody wants to go visit. Actually, when I was governor of Florida, it was a very competitive state for job creation. They got all the people coming from the West Coast uh, to get jobs in the great state of Utah. So with me is my good friend, Senator Mike Lee. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Rick. So let's start off Let's start off with what's going on right now. We've got, what, an inflation crisis, an energy crisis. And by, by the way, all this happened since Biden got elected. Border crisis, crime crisis. So what are you hearing from the uh, citizens of Utah? Back home in Utah, we're hearing from folks that they're very concerned. They're very concerned about the fact that the average Utah family is now spending... $751 a month, every month, more than they were spending a year ago, just at the beginning of last year. And th- these aren't luxury items they're buying. They're just the basic household expenses. Those basic household expenses are $751 a month more expensive. Now, they're not getting a, a, a month, a, a month a every month, month <laughs> recurring. And, and so they're not getting a new house out of that. They're not getting a luxury automobile or a boat or even a huge down payment on their child's college education, they are getting nothing. They're just getting the rewards of Joe Biden being president of the United States. Think about what you have to make more per month in after-tax income to pay for that. Yeah, that's a lot of money. That's what you I mean, think about. We're talking about well in excess of $1,000 a month more that you have to make, and yet people aren't making that. The average Utah family, just like the average American family, if they've seen any wage or salary increase at all, it's not nearly enough to keep up with what inflation is doing to them. And so what that means is a lot of people are dipping into their savings or they're just not getting by or they're buying fewer things. People are rationing food. I mean, this is pretty dire. And think about the number of people, what you what you hear, and it's probably happening in Utah, the people that are retired or have to, are about to retire, they have to postpone their retirement. People on fixed income that you know have to go back to work. Um, so this is why we don't elect progressives, because when we do what progressives want, which is what Joe Biden is and what he's pursuing, it results in higher prices and their policies ultimately harm the poor and the middle class. Wealthy people, most of the time, are, are going to figure out a way to manage that. Some of them will even get more wealthy out of it. But the poor and middle class get squeezed and there's no way out for them. That's why the progressive politics are so deadly. Now, think about it. We not only have price increases, we have shortages. So can you imagine in the United States of America that you would ever have to worry about having putting food on the table? But that's what's going on with, with regard to this baby form of shortage. Now, you've, you've got, I'm sure it's, hap- it's, it's hurting people in Utah, and you've got a plan to fix it. Yes, I, I do. And yeah, the, the baby formula example is a really good one, right? Because it, it illustrates why this is such a problem. There is no natural shortage at stake. There's no reason right. at all. Nothing about our ability to produce baby formula in this country is limited. It's limited artificially by government. Government restrictions that are that are protectionist in nature on the import of formula. Additional government restrictions about the labeling of formula. We could otherwise have uh, European produced baby formula that's safe, that's effective, that's got a proven track record, and that's regulated by agencies at least as stringent as the FDA in Europe. These products are as good as, in some cases, some say superior to American products, but because they don't have the exact same label, uh, our FDA won't let them sell them here. 
Finally, uh, the WIC program uh, produces vouchers. Those vouchers are very specific about what kind of formula you can buy with the voucher. If they're out of that one, you're out of luck. So I've introduced a bill called the Formula Act, especially because this thing's harming Utahns more than just about anybody. We, we've got uh, the lowest median age in the, in the country. We've got one of the highest birth rates in the country. We have a lot of babies. We like kids. So I've introduced the Formula Act. It would suspend all three of these government intrusions into this area for a period of six months. If we were to pass that today, it would solve the problem. And think about it, you've, you've traveled, um, you've done a mission trip, right? Are any of those countries you've ever been to, they don't, do they have a shortage? No, no, they I don't have it. It's hard to believe. There's we no have a shortage. shortage. We're don't. the only ones who have it because we're the only ones dumb enough to have the regulatory system that impairs American moms and dads in their ability to get formula. Full shelves in Panama, in Brazil, in Canada, in Israel, everywhere in the world. I've, I, have, I have people sending me pictures of full shelves of baby formula all over the world but here, it's empty. You can't get it here because Joe Biden doesn't let you. And look, so he makes this big show commandeering a, a military vessel using his powers as the commander-in-chief to go over there uh, to a, uh, an American air base in Europe, and he loads up some formula. It's a drop in the bucket. He'd have to take thousands of those flights to even make any difference at all. And he could handle that problem much more effectively, much more cost-effectively and immediately if he would just allow us to pass the Formula Act. I've gone to the Senate floor and tried to pass this because this is the kind of bill that should pass unanimously. Each time, it's been objected to by the Democrats. I'm still working. Why? Well, they have their reasons. They don't really articulate them. Uh, they, they have been working with me to try to address whatever concerns they've got. But look, the clock's ticking. American moms and dads need this stuff for their kids. Kids are hungry. Some people have been hospitalized after their parents have run out of formula options and they have to take them to the hospital. There's no reason for this to happen anymore. We need to pass the Formula Act now. You know, the way I look at it is Joe Biden's a rich kid. He's never, ever had to deal with sort of the crisis that most families deal with. You know, every family at some point deals with a financial crisis. You know, the guy's been taken care of by the federal government almost his entire life by his parents before then. He has no concept of how this stuff works. None, none whatsoever. And and he's been raised with this mindset and throughout his adult professional career, he's maintained the mindset and he's instilled it within government that government knows best. Government can handle things better than the unwashed masses as he sees all of us. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Well, you, you uh, since you've been up here, you've probably been one of the leaders, if not the leader on following the Constitution. I mean, you believe in it, you fight for it every day. And uh, you've written a new book about uh, the Supreme Court. And tell me why you wrote it and what's, what are you trying to make sure people understand? Well, I wrote this book. It's called Saving Nine. I wrote it because I became very concerned uh, about a year and a half ago on uh, the fall of 2020 when Joe Biden was debating then-President Donald Trump. And they asked Joe Biden, are you going to pack the Supreme Court if you're elected? He didn't answer the question as I thought he would. I thought he'd answer it the way everyone has always answered it, basically my entire life, which is no. Right. You, you can't do that. We've always understood uh, since 1937, the last time this was attempted, everybody agreed. Historians, law professors, lefties, righties, everybody in between has agreed court packing is bad. So I thought he'd say no. He didn't say no. He hemmed and he hawed and he said something like, well, I can't say yes or else they'll criticize me, so I'm just not going to say anything. That's usually a warning sign. It got worse when a few months later, he was president of the United States. 
and he put together a commission to study the idea of court packing. Also a big red flag. About that time, I started putting two and two together, and I realized that the court's probably going to take up a case dealing with abortion. It could end up revisiting Roe versus Wade. If it does, the left is going to try to demonize and delegitimize the Supreme Court, and they're going to try to respond to it and overturn that decision, overturning Roe, by packing the Supreme Court. So I, I did some research into it and discovered that no one has in modern history at least, ever written a book comprehensively cataloging and dealing with uh, the history of this kind of activity and explaining why it's so wrong. So I wrote Saving Nine. After you read Saving Nine, you'll never lose another argument again about court packing. But it's not just that. You'll never lose another argument again about American government and politics, as long as it has anything to do with the relationship between the free branches or the relationship between the federal government and the states and the people. If you read this book, you'll have the equipment, you'll have the argumentation down to the point that you'll be able to win all those arguments. And the history. And, and, exactly, and the history. And that's why I wrote the book. We need as many people as possible to read this book so that they're equipped. We can't win this on our own. As senators, we will fight valiantly at every turn to defeat the court packing plan. And I hope we can win. But what I know will make the difference is when the American people read this, they're armed with the facts, they'll help us win it. And how can you buy it? Well, you can buy it by texting Lee, L-E-E, -E, to 55404. The number 55404, just text Lee. That's my last name, L-E-E. -E. And uh, you can pick up a copy there. That's great. Now, you, uh, you're you on judiciary. Yes. All right. And we have uh, a new confirmed Supreme Court justice uh, taking Stephen Breyer's place, Katanya Brown-Jackson. Tell me, you had some concerns. I did. Uh, in uh, in the committee and on the floor. What, what were your concerns? I had some concerns. Based on her prior record as a jurist, these were concerns that were flagged um, uh, and and highlighted again, they were flagged initially when she came through a year earlier as a nominee to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Uh, I had some concerns then, and they were magnified when she came up as a nominee to the Supreme Court of the United States. She had, uh, from 2013 through 2021, served as a judge on the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. During that time period, she gave us some clues as to how she views her judicial power, how she chooses to exercise it. There were cases in which she issued opinions that she had no authority to issue, cases in which she entertained jurisdiction that she lacked. The thing about jurisdiction, Rick, is that if you lack subject matter jurisdiction in a case, that can't be waived. You, you, you can't waive that away. A judge can't arrogate to herself judicial power that she doesn't have. And when she does that, she's telling you something about the role she thinks she plays. That's a dangerous judge. And I, I was not prepared to elevate her to the Supreme Court. I wasn't prepared to elevate her even to the D.C. Circuit for those same reasons. Was she? Has she ever been overturned? Oh, yes. Yes. And I'm not as concerned about the fact that someone has been overturned. I, I, that, that doesn't scare me in and of itself. I want to know why they were overturned. A good judge can sometimes get it wrong. A good judge some, can sometimes even be overturned by an appellate court that, that may have been wrong. So I dive into these opinions to figure out whether or to what extent 
they may have been right, and they might have been wronged by being overturned. That wasn't the case here. She was fairly egregious in her usurpation of authority that wasn't hers. And in many instances, she was overturned by an appellate court panel consisting of people who were themselves quite liberal, who even were able to acknowledge she got it badly, badly wrong. So that worries me. That, along with the fact that uh, her sentencing, uh, uh, the sentences that she had imposed in some criminal cases, particularly criminal cases involving child pornography offenses, were wildly outside the mainstream, wildly outside the sentencing guidelines recommendations. And even worse than that, Rick, it was her explanation for how she got there. Because sometimes a judge can issue a sentence outside of the guidelines range, and there can be a good reason for it. But when you dig into it, that's where you figure out what the reasons were. Her reasons caused me more alarm, not less. Her reasons were, in many cases, I disagree with the way the system operates in this area. Therefore, Child I'm, pornography. Yes, in child pornography. This is an area where, you know, it's a huge, huge offense. It's a, by no means a victimless crime. No. The, the victims of that oh, no, are offended. Think about it, right? Uh, first in the creation of the material. Then in the distribution of the material, but then they're reoffended for the rest of their lives every time this material is distributed and shared. And it's pretty easy to do and on it's, the internet. Right? Exactly, increasingly easy to do. And that was another thing. She used the ease of the distribution as somehow a mitigating factor, reducing sentences rather than enhancing them. She said, I don't feel good about increasing the sentence. Uh, because now all this material is traded electronically and it's a lot easier to do than it would have been back in the day when you had to transfer it in a big box or something. I saw that as an aggravator. I, I mean, look, the fact that that's how they transact information, that's often how they pay for it now, is by trading it. The fact that it's gotten easier is a reason to punish them more harshly, not more lightly. So do you think the... Um when you when you think about a judge, do you think that they ought to be thinking about, well, what result do I want, or should they be following the law? They should be following the law. You don't start out with a case and say, hey, what result do I want? Let's back our way into it. That's bad judging. That's not judging. That's, uh, I don't know what it is, showboating of some sort, but it's not judging. And so that's a concern here, too. My sense in reviewing her record, reviewing speeches that she's given, writings that she's made, and uh, most importantly, rulings that she's issued as a judge, to me indicated an aptitude for judicial activism in order to pursue progressive ends. So you like your job up here. Uh, Love it. Yeah. It's a great job. So, t so you've got a race this year. I do. Uh, you have both, what, a primary and a general election? Yes, I've got a primary on June twenty. Yeah. So why do you like this job? What do you want to do? And Tell me about your, uh, your, your primary and your general election. Yeah, so why I like the job is because it, it allows me to look out for the interests of Utahns. I love my state. I love the people in it. And uh, I, I want Utahns to be free and prosperous and have the ability to uh, occupy a land that's been so good to all of us. Um, and, but yeah, as far as my race, in the, in the primary, I've got uh, two primary election opponents. And, uh, and anticipate a victory there. Um, I'm ahead significantly. I think I'll, I'll win that one. Uh, my polling has got me at about 65% right now. Um, I'm a little more worried about the general. My general election, I've got an opponent named Evan McMullen who's running as an independent. 
Um, Evan McMullen, however, has been endorsed by the Utah Democratic Party. He has promised... Has he been a Democrat before? No, hasn't been a Democrat before. He was previously a Republican, and he's been kind of trying to play off of that uh, by uh, convincing people that he can be whatever they want to imagine he would be. He, he was a Republican staffer to Kathy McMorris Rogers, a uh, member of the House of Representatives, uh, before he ran for President of the United States in 2016 against Donald Trump. Interestingly, he ran against Donald Trump, arguing, among other things, that Donald Trump was insufficiently conservative, that he was insufficiently pro-life. Turned out to be quite wrong on that. President Trump turned out to be very conservative in the policies he pursued, and the most pro-life president in modern history since the pro-life movement became a necessity. Um, but since then, Evan McMullen has drifted. Evan McMullen is now pro-abortion. He now says that he opposes efforts to overturn Roe versus Wade. He's now for all sorts of liberal, progressive priorities. And yet he kind of wants to have it both ways. So Evan McMullen is, uh, is polling. There's a uh, poll released just today by uh, uh, one of our major Utah newspapers suggesting that he's within four points of me. This is concerning because, again, he's already promised he will not caucus with Republicans if he's elected to the United well, tell States me how, Senate. Tell me the importance of that. How, how important is it that Republicans have a majority? What, what, how does that impact us? Or impact everybody in the country? If Republicans don't have a majority, that means Democrats have a majority. If Democrats have a majority, that means Chuck Schumer will continue to be in charge of the day-to-day -day planning operations of, of the Senate, and they'll have a majority to pass all sorts of bad things, all sorts of radical policies, including but not limited to court packing. It means that the threat of nuking the filibuster and all that could flow from that, all the uh, progressive wish list that could be made possible as a result of that, their attempt to commandeer uh, the electoral process by making elections run by the federal government instead of the states. All those things could happen along with D.C., Puerto Rico statehood, helping to ensure permanent Democratic majorities in both houses of Congress. That could all come about as a result of Republicans not having the majority. Look, we have to have somebody, something, some feature of government that can serve as a counterweight, a counterbalance to Joe Biden. Joe Biden is a disaster. He is absolutely horrible for the American people. And if we can't muster a Republican majority in the Senate, we lack one of the essential tools that we need to counter him. I hate to see the people of Utah make the mistake of electing Evan McMullen, knowing that Evan McMullen is going to be helping the Democrats one way or another. Well, just think about it. If you, if you care about Utah, okay, like right now, do you, with Chuck Schumer, is there any bills that you get that he puts on the floor and says, let's take a vote on this? No, and in fact, uh, he basically blocks out all Republican proposals, all Republican amendments. That's the norm. If there's ever an exception to that, it's rare, it's unusual, and it, it just almost doesn't happen. Um, he is a political animal, and uh, you know he's got his views. His views are not those of the people of Utah or the people of Florida or most of the people of the United States of America. So think about it. Biden's picked, nominated horribly radical left-wing people. If Chuck Schumer is the majority leader, can we block those? No. Right. If Chuck Schumer is the majority leader, if they continue to have a majority, we can't block those nominees. 
And likewise, if he's got the majority, we can't stop any of the bad pieces of legislation that he's got, except through the tools that we've already got through the, the Senate rule process and bringing debate to a close. But the closer we get to an ongoing uh, Senate Democratic majority, the more likely it becomes that they, number one, will use the tools at their disposal to make the filibuster rule less and less relevant. Remember, most legislation in the Senate can be passed by a simple majority, but most legislation in the Senate is subject to what they call cloture, which is where you bring debate to a close. You have to bring debate to a close before you can pass it by a simple majority, and that takes 60 votes. They can, in theory, many Democrats, most Democrats, have been calling on them to do something that we call nuking the filibuster. They want to nuke the filibuster, which is a, a trick that they could deploy, whereby with a simple majority vote, they could agree that they're going to blow off the cloture rule and blow off the 60-vote rule. And if they did that, they could do all of this stuff. They could change everything. They could nullify our right to have our elections administered at the state level. They could add additional states to guarantee a perpetual Democratic majority, which is really what they want. They could pack the Supreme Court. Could do all sorts of things that would be hostile to our interests. And in the meantime, we'd be powerless to stop them. So in a 50-50 Senate, how important is it that we win in Utah? It's absolutely imperative. Look, the state of Utah hasn't elected a Democrat to the United States Senate in my lifetime. Uh, the Democratic Party has realized that, and I think that's why they chose not to run their own nominee. They chose not to run any Democratic nominee and instead to issue a resolution endorsing the candidacy and supporting the candidacy of Evan McMullen. So he's essentially their Democrat. Yeah, so he will support the Democrats' position and he'll support Chuck Schumer as a majority leader, and so which means that you won't get a vote on anything you care about. That's exactly right. A bill, an amendment, our nominee, nothing. But it's not just me that won't get that. Of course, if, if Evan McMullen's elected, then I won't be here anyway. But but you won't. No Republican will. And, and the American people will be left powerless to stand up meaningfully to Joe Biden's abuses. Look, we can barely survive this for the first two years of Joe Biden's presidency. We can't survive this for four years of Biden's presidency which is why we've got to take back the majority now to stop it. So if somebody wants to help you right now, uh, make sure you win your Senate race, uh, which is not your Senate race, it's the people of Utah. I mean, yeah. you're, you're, a, you're a vessel for the people of Utah and what they believe in. So how can they help you? They can help me by texting the last name Lee, L-E-E, -E, to the number 55404. That's text Lee, L-E-E, -E, to 55404. So... I want to thank you for being here. This is the NRSC Red Zone. Is there anything you want to say before we finish? Nope. Just that uh, I appreciate you having me on the on the show today, and uh, I appreciate you letting me talk about Saving Nine. You can also buy a copy of Saving Nine by texting Lee to 55404. You've got to have the tools necessary to defeat this, and this will give you those tools. It'll make you aware of the arguments that really should be being taught in our school system. These are the things that in a prior, uh, more innocent age, would have been taught in high school, in junior high civics class. Uh, they would have been taught in college. They would have been taught more than they are in law school. But almost none of those institutions are doing that anymore because they've been kind of commandeered by the left. Right. And they've been captured. They're telling a different message. The, 
the damage that Franklin D. Roosevelt did to the constitutional structure, the way in which he expanded the federal government's role from a limited purpose federal government to a general purpose national government, that all resulted, and I explained this in chapters four and five of Saving Nine, it all resulted from Franklin D. Roosevelt's court packing plan. It scared, intimidated, and harassed Owen Roberts, an associate justice at the time, enough that he switched his vote. This was the infamous switch in time that saved nine. But nobody talks about it anymore. Nobody teaches. Uh, and to the extent they have, they attribute it to the wrong case. They're trying to overlook the fact that they effectively amended the Constitution without going through the constitutional amendment process. That, by the way, is why we're $31 trillion in debt. And that, by the way, is why we've got $2 trillion in regulatory compliance costs, and why most of our laws are made by unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats. All the fault of Franklin D. Roosevelt, who, by the way, happens to be Joe Biden's idol. Well, thanks, everybody, for uh, tuning in to the Interesting Red Zone. I want to thank my good friend, Senator Mike Lee from the great state of Utah. I hope everybody will text Lee, L-E-E, to 55404. He's got to win. He's got to win his primary. He's got to win his general election. It's the way we're going to make sure we get a majority in the Senate. So thank you very much for being here. Thanks, Rick.